This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Michael Bordeaux, a monetary historian, professor of economics at Rutgers University, distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Welcome. Thank you. Now, Michael, I want to first get into how you got interested in economics. You grew up in Montreal, uh, and you also attended uh, McGill, um, and then you went to the University of Chicago and studied under Milton Friedman um, for your PhD, and had Friedman as your dissertation advisor. And you were also at Chicago during a time when it was blessed with many international economists, many very famous international Canadian monetary economists, um, people like Harry Johnson, Bob Mundell, who would win the Nobel Prize later, and you're very famous for you know, Mundell Fleming, you know, the trilemma. Um, I'm curious, like, how did you get interested in monetary economics to begin with, and how did you end up at Chicago? Okay, well, I, I studied economics at McGill. In fact, I did an honors economics and political science. And it, it's, a, it's a very good, it, it is a uni- good university. It was even a better university way back when. And they were very strong in economics. And I took an honor, you know, I took this honors program. So there were small classes and really smart people. And I, you know, I really got into it. But what got me into economic history and, and monetary history was the first year we were there, we had to take a course, an introductory course, in economics, but it was economic history. And it was taught by F. Cyril James, who was the principal of the university, and he was a famous British economic historian who was an expert on the Great Depression, and specifically the Chicago banking panic of 1932. Okay, and he gave this incredible course, and he ended it with the story of what happened in 1931 when the entire international financial system collapsed. And so I was hooked. And then I went into economics, I did micro, macro, all that stuff, right? And then I went to, the, I went to LSE, at the London School of Economics. Back then in the 60s, Canadians, a lot of Canadians went to England. That was part of the deal. So I went there, I had great advisors and great people. I was with, worked with Bill Phillips, Lord Robbins, okay, um, and, and a number of other people. Ed Mission, who was a student, of, who was a former student of Milton Friedman. And so I did, you know, I had a great time in, at, at LSE, but I realized I needed to learn some more, that I didn't really have that strong background. And so I was advised by Mission, my advisor, to, sh- to go to Chicago. And I applied, and Harry Johnson, I got in touch with Harry Johnson, who was at Chicago, through the, connect, through the mission connection. And he just, you know, opened up, opened up all the doors for me. He got funding, and I went from LSE to Chicago. And I arrived there, and I was assigned a student advisor, and it's Milton Friedman. You know, and I walked into his office, he said, you know, wow, you've got a great background, you know, McGill. LSE, dot, 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 you know, and I, 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 and I just sort of got hooked. I took his courses. What year would this have been? This, is, this was 1965. So I took Friedman's courses. 
I also did economic history with Robert Fogel, and I really liked him. And I did international with, with Harry, international trade, and, and Bob Mundell. And Mundell, he just arrived the same time as me, and he was like 10 years older. And I took his first course, and it was incredible. I loved it. Okay, he was just really, really, really hot. Okay, and so I did very well in his course. I took all his courses. Had he come up with the Mundell Fleming trilemma at this point? So this is 65, yeah, he did, well. So he'd already worked at the IMF. He, he'd already, his famous papers were already done. Okay, I mean, the trilemma thing comes in later, people. That was an interpretation by, 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 by Dornbush. Okay, Mundell didn't use that term, but Dornbush is the one that came up with that. But so I, I was influenced by, by, by Harry, by, by Bob Mundell, by Bob Fogel, and by Milton Friedman. So these were, the, these were the influences that I had. But I also took courses from Stigler, who was great, you know, and there were some other people, and Al Harberger too. So I had, I had fantastic teachers. And I started doing, in a sense, what I did. My dissertation was in monetary history because of the, one of the best things that came out of Friedman's courses was reading a monetary history of the United States. And that's been my Bible ever since. And so, you know, we had to study it. We, we like, parsed the footnotes. If you wanted to pass the monetary economics ex prelim, you had to know that stuff. And I really? did. That's yes. fantastic. Oh, yes. In, I mean, that book came out, what, in the 1960s? It came out in 1963. Okay. Okay. And it's still, it's still the classic. It's the Bible, if you want to understand the, the, the history of the U.S., it, of the Fed, monetary history, and I said, that's where you always start. So I was, you know, I was, I, I started, I worked with Friedman, my dissertation was with Friedman, and Fogel was on my committee, and it was a monetary history thesis which tested Friedman's ideas using historical examples. Okay, so that was my thesis. And then I met Anna Schwartz because I needed data, and I got in touch with her, this is my last year at Chicago, and um, we, 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 we got on very well, and then I got Milton to, in a sense, arrange for me to go to the NBER for four months to work with Anna to get the data I needed. This was when the NBER was in New York? It was in New York City, and I went there the, the first year after I, I started teaching. I had my first teaching job in Canada at Carleton University in Ottawa, and I came down to New York, and I worked with Anna all summer, and we hit it off, okay? And it's like she became my mentor, and I wrote all, started writing papers with her. And she asked me, she had a, an assignment to write a paper on, on, on a survey on monetary history. She didn't have time to do it all, so she said, look, could you do this? I did it, I put a lot of time into it. You know, and it was a big hit. And then more, more papers came along, and we started writing stuff together. Okay, and we started getting involved in big projects. And so that was one of the, that's the reason why I'm in the United States. Because through Anna, I then got, I then got invited to Carnegie Rochester, to the conferences in the 70s, and I got Which to- Which were very famous, I mean, at the time. Yeah, that was the that, place uh, to go. And so I was there, I was there from like, I don't know, 77. And I got involved with Bruner and Meltzer, and I met lots of people. I met all the luminaries in economics. John Taylor was there then, Jacob Frankel, Stan Fisher. I was there. I got to know these people. And then I started working more and more with Schwartz. 
And then it was like they, they took a vacuum cleaner to the border, border, border and <laughs> sucked me across. Okay, I, I was a visiting scholar at the St. Louis Fed, and, and um, I got an offer to go to the University of South Carolina because one of my uh, classmates from Chicago, Mike Connolly, was there. And, you know, Carleton was great, but I was getting paid peanuts, had a huge teaching load. And so I moved to South Carolina. I had a really light teaching load and tripled my salary. Fantastic. And, of course, you, Carleton, um, did, they, did they match the offer? They just said bye, bye-bye, and I left, and I never came back. Wow. But, but that's what got me. It was the Anna Schwartz connection that got me into the United States. Is there a reason why you think Canadians have been so prominent in the international economics field? Um, Canada was the first country to really break away from Bretton Woods uh, and, and its fixed exchange rate system in the 1950s and uh, floated for you know, a good you know, period of over 10 years and then went back to fixed exchange rates uh, in, in the 60s or the Diefenbach, as I yes, think it was yes. called. And then, and then they went back to floating after the whole right. Bretton Woods system broke down in the early 70s. But do you think that you know, there's a reason why, you know, uh, I, I guess... People like Mundell and, and people like yourself, I guess, maybe growing up in Canada, you have more of an international type um, lens to things. I mean, I feel like when I you know, grew up in, in Toronto that maybe I sort of developed a, a bit of a sense for international news a little bit. Uh, well, I mean, yes, Canada's, Canada was always the quintess quintessential small open economy. Canada was a small country, I mean, big geographically, but population very small next to the United States. And so whatever was going on in the States would affect us, okay? And so, you know, and so, the, so Canada had really had to worry about its, its balance of payments. And so much of monetary, much of international monetary economics was developed in part because of this issue. And so Canadians always thought in terms of international economics and monetary, international and macro, those two things were tied together, and international trade. Some of the great trade people, theorists, were Canadians too, like John Chipman, but there are a whole lot of others. Ron McKinnon from here. From, right, another okay. great international Hoover, Canadian You know, economist. not a Hoover guy, a Stanford guy, is Canadian. He came from Alberta. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... And, it, and very famous for coining the whole idea of uh, financial repression. Right, but, and, but also he worked on the dollar standard, and he was really incredible. But it's the Canadian connection, and I, I was good friends with him. So there, there are a lot of us that did this. And then, and it's just sort of, you know, and the Bank of Canada also, they, they were part of this. I mean, they, you know, people who were at the bank, had some of them had studied in the States and in England, and they were thinking the same way. Um, and, and in a sense, just getting back to your story about the 1950s, so what happened, I'm writing a paper on that right now, so what happened is Canada joined the Bretton Woods system, but the problem was that they picked a parity that was too low, and after World War II, especially at, at, at the end of the 40s, there was a huge capital inflow from the United States to Canada, okay, when the Korean War came along, they needed our resources, so this, what this did was it pushed up, we were on a, a fixed exchange, the peg, okay, it was a dollar at that time, the parity was a dollar, it pushed the dollar, it, it, it pushed up uh, the international reserves of the Bank of Canada, 
and it, it was a huge capital inflow, huge increase in resources, and this had a very big inflationary effect. And so Canada got permission to temporarily leave the Bretton Woods peg and float. But what happened was they were pretty successful at doing it, and the floating exchange rate system, which, which was an anathema to the, to the Bretton Woods system, it was very successful. Okay, and so, so they de-pegged in, in part because the, the post-World War II uh, capital inflows were causing inflation. Yeah, but it was an inflation shock from the U.S. And then they, they were pressured by the IMF to go back. And the, um, there were, there's a whole big story about the governor of the Bank of Canada, a guy named James Coyne. He followed too tight a policy in the latter part of the 50s causing a worse recession in Canada than the U.S. And he, he, his idea was that he wanted to stop capital inflows. He thought capital inflows was a big problem. And so he thought the way to do that was to, was to tighten even more. He didn't understand Mandel Fleming. In fact, Mandel wrote his famous paper because of the mistake that Coyne made. Okay, and then what happened, Coyne got fired and there was a big turmoil in Canada. And what happened was they then decided to go back to the pegged exchange rate, and they did so in a very messy way, and it was a financial crisis. Canada went back to floating in the 60s, okay, and whatever was going on in the world that was terrible, i.e. the great inflation here in the United States, we imported it, Canada imported it, and so the performance was pretty bad. And then, again, the shocks coming from the States okay, were the reason why they went back. They left it in 1970 because this is the great inflation. Okay, it's Arthur Burns, and so Canada left and went on a float. And so it's, it's what, what drove Canadian, Canada's decision to float, okay, and it really affected Canadian monetary, was what was going on in the United States, and it's always been that issue, okay. I mean, it, later in the century, it's China too, because they are, they are uh, you know, a resource, major resource, um, commodity, commodity resource exporter. But Canada's an open economy, so that's the answer. Wow. That, I mean, that's totally fascinating, um, both as uh, somebody that grew up in Canada and uh, as uh, someone uh, who, who works in uh, international economics to some degree. So you've written, in your career, you've written 350 academic papers, approximately, about 20 books, um, I'm curious, like, what have been some of your like, favorite uh, accomplishments in economic history and monetary economics? Like, what would you say your main ideas about monetary economics are? Like, I think you know, it's safe to say that you like to take the economic history sort of long view, I think, in the same tradition of Friedman and Schwartz. Um, you like to take the old sort of Chicago monetary economics approach and look at economic history as a kind of laboratory, looking at various monetary experiments. Um, and I, I would assume that you know, you would recommend that policymakers should pay you know extra careful uh, attention uh, to history, um, and, and perhaps look back at it um, more. I, I want to talk uh, about I guess just a, a few different sort of strands of, of work that um, you've been involved in. And you had a very famous conference volume with Anna Schwartz on the gold standard. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, we had a conference in 1983. Um, at Hilton Head, uh, South Carolina, an NBR conference. And the reason we held it was because there was a lot of interest at the end of the Great Inflation 
in the U.S. Uh, going on some kind of uh, tying the dollar to gold. And there was a commission, the U.S. Gold Commission in D.C. It was a congressional commission. Anna Schwartz was the, she, she was in charge. She was the director of it. And I was her staff. Okay, I, 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 did the, I did the crunching and I did a lot of the work in the book that we put out. And so I was really involved in the gold standard. Okay, and then I was visiting the, I was visiting the St. Louis Fed and the, the, the research director at the time, uh, Ted Ballback, who was a student of Alan Meltzer and Bruner, he's, he asked me to write a paper explaining what the gold standard was. And I put in a lot of time, I was there for a year, I wrote a paper on the, on the classical gold standard, I explained it, I put a lot of data together. Okay, they published it in the St. Louis Review, Fed Review in 1981, and it, it got more hits than any other paper they ever published, okay, it was really, because this is the interest in gold. So our conference was to say, let's look at history, because there's so much interest in gold. How did the gold standard work? You know, how did it work? How did monetary policy work in the gold standard? Why did it break down? Why is gold, the gold, not a good idea today? So we commissioned papers by some really top people, and I, I, was, a, I was the co-organizer with Anna Schwartz, and Marty Feldstein, who was head of the NDR then, you know, he, he and I got on really well, and so he just, you know, wrote a blank check to have this big conference. We had the, probably the best people, in, many of the best people in international monetary economics at this conference, a lot of whom aren't around anymore. Friedman was there, Bruner was there, you know, Bundell was there, Dornbush, I can just go through the list, and Frankel. Um, and so that was a great book, and I wrote a big paper at the beginning on the sort of the history of ideas on the gold standard. Like, you know, how do, how do people think about the gold standard? And how did, the, the, you know, how did, this, how, did, how did the thinking about the gold standard evolve? And I wrote this big paper, History of Economic Thought, mainly. And it's, people still cite it. Okay, so I, I feel really good about that. That's terrific. And then what about, um, you have another very, very famous conference volume with um, Barry Eichen Green um, on, I think, the Bretton Woods system that I think has been very influential in sort of documenting a lot of the historical facts around Bretton Woods. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, so what we did was um, the Bretton Woods system uh, collapsed in 1971 when uh, Richard Nixon, uh, president, uh, closed the gold window. There's a whole lot written about that. Uh, I mean, George Shultz was part of that process. Okay, but what we did was we had this idea, I had this idea with Barry, that we would have a retrospective on Bretton Woods 20 years after it. Okay, so it's 1991. So again, we commissioned really top people in international monetary economics to write the papers and I did the first paper, which was, a, in a sense, a survey on the Bretton Woods system. What was the Bretton Woods system? How did it evolve? Okay, what were the problems of the Bretton Woods system? Why did it break down? And so that was the, the first paper, and then there were a lot of really great papers that followed that. And that first paper is still, when anyone works on Bretton Woods, they always go back to that paper. So I feel great about that. And we're now at the 50th anniversary of yeah. uh, the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system. Do you think that we've sort of learned anything in the past 50 years about uh, exchange rates? And obviously things have changed a, a little bit in the sense that um, we now, certainly you know, most countries are still 
uh, most advanced economies, I think, still have uh, floating exchange rates. Uh, and you know, Friedman, I think, uh, arguably won that debate with you know, famous debate with Bob Mundell um, over you know fixed versus floating exchange rates. This was something. If you look back in you know some of Friedman's older work in say Capitalism and Freedom, or uh, you know he would have these very famous debates with um, Bob Mundell and and you know the fixed versus floating debate you know was was a thing for a long time. I mean now it's easy. You can look sort of in hindsight. Well, you know obviously you know, floating exchange rates you know kind of make sense and. Um, for a number of reasons, um, but you know, interestingly, um, like I feel like it was not certainly was not clear when the Brentwood system broke down. Sure, years ago. it wasn't. But you see, I mean, it, and there's still some people that you know out there. Yeah, I think who are you know, there's still people, gold standard, old gold standard fixed exchange rate people uh, who still I mean, want to go European back. The whole European Union came out of that against and it's a pushback to floating exchange rates. The op- optimum currency areas, all, and, you know, and certainly yeah. Mundell was part of that. Right, but but in a sense, the way I see it is Milton, and this is one of Milton's great accomplishments, he won the war. He really did. The, the world's been on floating since, you know, since the 70s. It took them like 15 to 20 years to realize you had to conduct sound monetary policy. In fact, Friedman said two things. He said floating gives you independence, okay, but he said that what really matters is the policies you follow. If you follow bad monetary policies, floating isn't going to be good for you. It can maybe exacerbate your problems. So it took 15, 20 years before they figured that one out. But what's happened is, since then, it's very successful. And all the countries that went on floating and the advanced countries have done extremely well. And in a sense, what they did was, again, going back to Friedman, Friedman said you need a monetary rule and you need an anchor to anchor monetary policy and the, and the countries, the most successful countries, Canada, okay, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, the, the, the ones who floated early and developed these, you know, IT, inflation target, they've done the best. So I see the floating, um, which some people used to call a non-system, I see that as an amazing accomplishment. It's, it's fascinating um, to just, I mean, Think about how that has evolved, um, and, and certainly now I, I think too, um, you know, the, the whole concept of I mean, what you could kind of call a, you know Washington consensus or dare I say you know neoliberal consensus um, around um, you know, not only free flowing exchange rates but free uh, floating capital or capital flows. Um, I, I feel like in recent like over the past decade or so, there's been a bit of a change in thinking. Around you know what the IMF thinks yeah. about capital inflows and hot money, and that it's maybe not so great to have. So they're they're sort of on the capital control side of things. I think the IMF has budged a little bit, and we're not quite in that uh, I'm you know old Washington consensus world anymore. Um, but it, yeah, it's an interesting debate um, that still goes on, both uh, you know free. Uh, you know, inflating exchange rates versus fixed, and uh, the whole uh, you know, should we have um, free floating um, capital flows? I want to uh, talk to you uh, a little bit more about banking crises, and certainly uh, given that we've we've been seeing recently uh, in the U.S., there's been a lot of attention around you know Silicon Valley Bank and, and regional banks that have been failing and have entered receivership with the FDIC. You've written a very famous paper on the history of 
banking and financial crises, as well as many other famous papers on lender of last resort powers. I'm curious what you think about um, the whole regional banking uh, crisis that we're seeing now and, and some of these old um, you know, historical credit crunches that you know, we tend to see around you know, these Fed hiking cycles. Um, like, what do you think economic history should teach us or teach policymakers um, about these sorts of you know, banking crises that seem to crop up um, or credit crunches that seem to crop up when central banks are raising interest rates in response to, say, inflation? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of themes that are going on, going on at the same time, and, and people don't, don't always recognize that. So one of the things that I... I one of the uh, themes that comes out of my work on credit crunches with, uh, with Joseph Halbrick, a researcher at the Cleveland Fed, is that um, the, the business cycle, if we look at the business cycle in the US, we went all the way back to the 1860s, okay, but the business cycle in the US in the post-World War II period always has this sort of pattern whereby the Fed's behind the curve, Okay, they, 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 there's, there's a recession, they follow expansionary policy, but they keep going too long, and then inflation starts to heat up and they tighten. And what almost always happens is that as the tightening cycle progresses, there's financial stresses. Okay, there's bank failures, there's savings and loans. I mean, there's a whole history of credit, credit crunches. Okay, it's part of the pattern. And, um, and what, what, what our research shows and is looking at today is that most of those episodes occurred when inflation was low. And so when the Fed tightened, in a sense, the credit crunch was a signal for them to loosen because they had pretty well knocked the inflation out of the, out of the system. Okay, but there were, there were two episodes in the 1970s when this pattern happened, and the Fed did not, it, the, Fed, the, Fed, the Fed was tightening, it then loosened, okay, in the early 70s and in 75, and then they, they threw in the towel again because unemployment's going up, okay, and the great inflation kept ratcheting up. So there were two big mistakes. Well, here we are right now where we still have inflation. It's persistent, okay, it's like 4.5 4 or 5%, okay, and we have a credit crunch. And the Fed is going to pause, okay, because they don't want to have... Uh, they don't want to have a full-blown financial crisis, but the, the risk is that they don't get rid of the inflation and then they have to do more tightening, which could lead to more financial instability. Okay, so that's one of the other theme is the theme about banking regulation and lender of last resort. Okay, so one of the things we saw in this recent SVB crisis and now with, with the Bank of New York is that, in a sense, when it looks like there's, you know, that, that, that a bank is in trouble and it's a big bank and possibly politically connected, okay, they're going to get bailed out and the depositors are going to get bailed out. This was happening with SVP. I couldn't believe it when they talked about, when Janet Yellen talked about, well, uninsured depositors, we'll make sure that they don't lose any money. Well, the whole point of uninsured depositors, it goes back to the legislation in the 90s was that they would be they would police the banks and they would make them honest they would, they would they would keep them from making the kinds of risky 
moves that a lot of the banks do. They would keep them looking, looking at their balance sheets. And so we get a crisis because the banks make big mistakes and because the Fed is tightening. Why is the Fed tightening? Because they're too late. They, they, they were way behind the curve after the pandemic. So they caused, they caused the inflation, then their tightening is causing a recession, totally predictable, and it's causing, a, it's causing financial stress. And then you got this moral hazard problem tied in with bailing out or protecting the, the big institutions, not so big, but still big institutions that are involved. So I, I see this as, as pretty terrible, actually. <laughs> It's passing. And, and I also, just on this whole topic of sort of, you know, what causes inflation, uh, you um, recently did some work with um, Mickey Levy for a conference uh, in the UK on how large fiscal expansions can lead to inflation. Um, but I, I suppose they can also be accommodated by monetary expansions. Can you talk a little bit more about that and sort of your view over, um, you know, for example, at the current sort of global inflation scenario, Obviously, yeah, there's a massive debate right now about to what degree, uh, you know, supply chains versus fiscal policy versus monetary policy versus other causes. Um, you know, there's some people out there that are arguing that um, you know, corporations are raising prices and, and it's like an I.O. kind of story. I'm curious, you know, where do you land in, in oh, the I, debate? I, 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 I'm, I'm totally retro. I mean, I, I think that inflation is a monetary phenomenon, but I do think that when you say a monetary phenomenon, it's usually because there's large fiscal expansion too. And so we looked at just at the history uh, across countries, the history of big fiscal expansions and inflations. And we found that in most cases it's wartime. And what happens is, like it happened in the United States, is you have a huge fiscal expansion, okay, because you gotta fund the war, and the monetary policy is very accommodative. So you get the money supply going up and you got big fiscal deficits. And we got inflation. In World War II we had controls, which in a sense were successful in the sense that patriotism got people not to evade them as much as they otherwise would have. Okay, so that was, you know, and we looked at the history of different countries going all the way back to the 18th century. And so what we found was that when you have big shocks, which involve fiscal expansion, that the central banks usually involved, okay, and that you get inflation. And we were very eclectic on the, on the, on the theories, okay. So we, the way I saw it was, you know, I always had this sort of mon simple monetarist or the, or the, um, you know, the, the, sar the, the sergeant, Tom Sargent story, you know, about how, we, how, how, how the central bank was always going to accommodate the fisc. Okay, but I was very the fiscal dominance kind of you know, the fiscal dominance story. But I always was sympathetic. I've always been sympathetic to, to John Cochran's work uh, on the fiscal theory of the price. So I have, in a sense, the jury's out on what what goes on. But fiscal is when you have big inflations. Fiscal's almost always involved. Okay, and even the the great inflation. Okay, the great inflation was the Vietnam War. And, the, and Johnson's Great Society, and the Fed was accommodating. Okay, so that was a peacetime, it was a war, but not a world war. So I see the pandemic, I see the pandemic as World War II, existential crisis, okay? The government in the US, UK, a whole lot of other countries, they throw the kitchen sink at it. 
and the central bank, the Fed, the Bank of England, Bank of, they accommodated. Okay, and so it's so predictable to me that this was going to lead to inflation. And then there's all this talk about the supply shocks, supply this, supply. I've always thought that, su that supply shocks are relative price changes and they're temporary. Okay, and that can all that can be part of the process, but what's behind it always is ex monetary expansion, and usually what's behind that is fiscal. And so I. I just knew it in 1920, in 2020, that we were going to have inflation, and we said this in this paper. And then we had a we had two pieces in the Wall Street Journal where we were in early 2021. We were predicting that this was going to happen, and we were right. Okay, Larry Summers did the same thing. Larry Summers is more famous than me; that he's the one that gets the credit. But we were right, and the Fed was wrong, and they blamed it on temporary. And so that's. Oh, and transitory. Right. And it come, to me, it, it's just knowing, knowing history. And so my, my criticism of, of the Fed and other central banks is they should look back at their own histories. And how could they, how could they not see this was coming? I find it impossible to understand. Absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, I feel like his, history is such an important uh, thing to always think about. And, you know, there's the famous saying, uh, I think... Um, History doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. Yeah. Um, what's fascinating, I'm curious, like, just your time at, at Chicago, like, do you have any particular um, Friedman stories or, or anything like that that uh, you want to share? You, you also wrote many papers with um, Anna Schwartz. I feel like uh, this sort of long and wonderful um, macro and, and monetary um, history tradition doesn't quite get its due enough in economics departments today. Um, some departments, uh, like Northwestern and Sanford, certainly um, are still very invested um, actively in, in, uh, in economic history, and, and as are many other departments as well. Um, but I feel like in terms of developing new talent, it um, uh, can be a, a bit rare um, nowadays. But I'm curious, do you have any particular um, fun stories that you'd like to share? Or, or? I mean, you know, uh, uh, anybody who <coughs> knew Friedman will, will tell you that he was he was a great teacher. He was, uh, if you were a graduate student, he was a very nice guy. Um, he was hard, to, hard to, 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 to get an appointment to see him. He was really busy. Okay, but when I saw him, we, we got on just fine. Um, and the thing about Friedman, you know, he was really, like if you weren't a graduate student, and if you were an economist, established economist, and you came to the money workshop, then you were, you were in big trouble because Friedman, he was really incredible how he would take people apart. But the most, the, the one episode that I remember, it sticks in my brain, okay? And I, there are a few people around that can remember, but not too many. So one time he had Robert Clower come down to the money workshop. Clower was at Northwestern. Clower was a monetary theorist, a Keynesian. And he was giving one of his famous papers called The Keynesian Perplex or something like that. And I like Clower, a really nice guy. I liked him a lot. <laughs> so the way Milton ran the money workshop was everybody was supposed to read the paper first, and they were supposed to have comments. And the author, he could he had five minutes to just clear up the typos and just you know say motivated. And then Friedman would go like you know you go around the room, you say page one, page two, and people would jump. Okay. 
So, but if it was somebody like like Clower, and I heard he did this to other people. So Clower, you know, gives his intro, and then Milton says, he says, Bob, I don't understand how a smart like guy like you could be working on, on such a job. He said, I'm, okay, and it's like <laughs> very forward. Yeah, but Friedman was he was really good, um, uh, and he was so brilliant. It's like. You know, all of us who were students, we were kind of, you know, intimidated by Friedman. He was a nice guy, but still, you know, you just knew you'd never have the insights that he had. I always had that feeling in Chicago, you know, that I was in, the, I was, I studied under the greats, you know. Absolutely. Well, you, well, you did. I did. I was extremely lucky. Uh, and I was, I knew Friedman when he was at the height of his analytical abilities. I mean, he, he, that's when he did, did all his major work in monetary economics, and before that, price theory. Okay, later he became, you know, a public intellectual when he came out here and he focused mainly came here to Hoover. Policy, mm -hmm. came to Hoover. But so I didn't know Friedman in those years. I mean, I came out here a couple of times and saw him. But we got on just fine. I mean, one time I came out, um, I came to California for a, for a conference, for a meeting, and I tipped off uh, Milton that I was coming, and he invited me over there uh, to his apartment. In this is in San Francisco. Yeah, I went to his apartment on Russian Hill, and uh, it was really nice. And Rose, was, I was going on fine with Rose too, so you know, I, I had lunch with them, and it was really fun, you know, just hanging out with Friedman. So he, he you know, I think of him as, I mean, everybody will say how brilliant, he was brilliant, okay, and he had, in, in my view, I think he was uh, one of the two, in my view, but not, a lot of people don't agree anymore. I think he still was one of the two best economists of the 20th century. Absolutely. I think a lot of people would still agree. I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit biased, yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, I think obviously there's others that would be um, in that conversation as well. Um, but certainly, I mean, it's just amazing um, you know, to think everything from you know, the great microeconomics work that he did, you know, theory of the consumption function, you know, permanent income hypothesis type work, um, to, you know, certainly all the, you know, macro theory work around, you know, monetary targets and, you know, the Friedman rule, you know, uh, of optimality, all the economic history work that we've been talking about. Like, we've only been talking about just one branch of you yeah. know, Friedman's brilliance. Uh, and of course, all the you know, public policy um, work, and we also did great you know labor economics work. You know, his dissertation was on you know occupational licensing with right. um, Simon Kuznets, and so um, yeah, he's, he's just so prolific. And I feel like those sorts of economists are so rare these days. Well, I was very I was very lucky. I was lucky to be, and I was extremely even even as lucky or more lucky to spend thirty years working with Anna Schwartz because Anna Schwartz, okay, she didn't get the credit. She didn't get the Nobel Prize, but she was a key person in Friedman's work. Okay, and that the a monetary history of the United States was a joint product, and she did a lot. And I worked with her, and we we got on really fine. But I could, you know, she was she 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 had the same views as Mil Milton. Okay, and but she was interested in economic history more than he was. And you know, I found working with him, with her was was really one of the best things that ever happened to me because I worked with her for thirty years, 
Okay, that launched my career in the United States. And we, we just did some great work together. And see, Milton was already out here at Hoover, and he wasn't doing the kind of academic work in monetary economics that he had done in the 70s. But Anna, she kept it going. She talked to him. Every week they would talk. And Anna was out there getting, she was in the NBR, she went to the monetary economics conferences, she followed everything, and she would be always keeping Friedman up to date. Okay? But she was really, really, really smart. She wasn't a techie. Okay? She didn't do models. Okay? And, but she understood models. And she always understood that you, you have to go through the models to see what the story is. And that's been my approach. You know, I go to I go to macro workshops. And I'm you know I, I I get tuned out when they get into the into the into the, into the into the into the numerics and the equations. But the story is what I'm interested in, and I almost and I learn from them and from Anna especially to see what exactly is this guy saying. You know, so I learned what I got from them was how to get to the heart of an issue and see what's really important, what's the deep fundamental. And Friedman, he was, you know, as you know, he just—he always nailed it. He always hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Well, this has been a real uh, privilege, uh, Michael, to talk to a fellow uh, Canadian economist um, on so many great topics of economic history, from Bretton Woods, uh, various uh, inflationary episodes, including the one we're currently living in, um, the you know, banking crises, and you know, to what degree. Uh, there's some similarities with a lot of past uh, credit crunches um, and today's um, great tightening cycle and, and uh, things that we've been seeing recently with regional banks. This has been a, a real honor, and I really want to thank you for joining us, Michael. Oh, thanks. It's my pleasure, really. <laughs> you got to stop me. You know, I can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. Thank you so much. Okay. Today, I was joined by Michael Bordeaux, a monetary historian, professor of economics at Rutgers University, Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.